This portion is brought to you by the Paris Valley Chamber of Commerce. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seat. The show is about to start. Hey guys, what's up? This is Phoebe. This is Mike. This is episode number 40 of the Mike and Phoebe show and happy new year. It's the beginning of 2024. And with that, of course, there's a lot of changes in the HR laws. And we're here to talk about those kind of changes on our podcast today. So don't fear. We're going to straighten out any kind of questions you may have. Yay! <laughs> so joining us today from the Paris Valley Chamber of Commerce is a office manager, Melissa Barnes, and fellow ambassador and marketing consultant, Randall Rodriguez, along with fellow Paris Chamber member, Jeremiah Raxter, who was the founder and principal attorney at Raxter Law. Welcome, guys. Hey, Welcome. Thank, thank you. you for us. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Okay, so thank you for having us back um, as the chamber. We really love this this segment that we're doing with you. So again, my name is Melissa Barnes, and I welcome you to the Paris Valley Chambers podcast with a purpose. So we will regularly sit down with local leaders, business owners, and area professionals to discuss a variety of business community topics. Um, of course, this time it's the labor and law updates that have come through for 2024. So of course, like Phoebe said, we have Jeremiah Raxter um, joining us today. So thank you for joining us, Jeremiah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So I see here in your bio that you represent government agencies and businesses of all sizes. You've been a, you're a published legal contributor and have served as a judge pro tem, special master, and an expert witness. So we really appreciate all of your expertise and knowledge joining us today on this podcast. No problem. Again, thanks for having me. I It's, it's, Always great to help businesses stay protected. My office only represents employers, um, so I try to keep do the best we can to keep employers out of trouble. Yes, and that is why we are here today to make sure that our business, our member businesses, are in compliance and know everything that has has passed the legislator, and now they are responsible for implementing. So um, let's just dive into it. What are some of the biggest laws or changes that have occurred in the labor HR realm this year in 2024? So 2024 saw quite a few changes. You know, we are California, meaning, you know, we love to enact new laws, um, and we're really good at it. Sometimes it we're really good at enacting them and then figuring out what they mean later. Um, so one of the, some of the bigger ones, I'm just going to highlight some of the ones that I think that will apply to almost any business out there. Um, whether, you know, whether you're a mom and pop, you know, s- small business all the way up to, you know, uh, multi-location. Um, so the first one would be the expanded leave. California employers are now uh, required to provide five days of paid sick leave. Uh, that's up from three days. Uh, there's a whole calculation on how that has to be calculated. Uh, but really what's important to know is now you have to provide five paid sick days to your employees. Um, does that include full-time, part-time? Which that, employees does that apply to? That's a really good question. So it applies to all employees. Um, if they're part-time, then you would have to pay them what their normal pay would be. Meaning, you know, if they're there for four hours, you'd have to provide the four hours of paid time off. Uh, if they're a normal eight-hour employee, then you'd have to provide the normal eight hours. The concept behind this law, the the reason it got enacted was we don't want sick people at work. You know, we don't want people to not be able to go to the doctor 
if they're not feeling well just because they're going to miss a day of work. And that that's why we started with the three days. Now it's been expanded to the five days. The idea behind that is sometimes it takes a week to get better. So the concept behind this law, I really agree with. And I think it really makes a lot of sense because we all have been there where, you know, the person comes to work, they're not feeling well, they're sick. We all know they're sick, but they don't want to miss um, because they they can't afford to miss. You know, they can't afford to not be there for the day. And so now hopefully they could stay home. They could go to the doctor and not make everybody else sick. So I think this is one of those good laws that not only look good on paper, actually looks good in practice as well. But it's something that we have to factor into when we factor in budgets and everything else, because it's a five days paid time off. Okay, so question. So is it five days or is it a specific amount of hours? So it's five days or 40 hours. So depending on, and that goes back to if they're part-time or full-time, how we're going to calculate it. But it is, um, in essence, 40 hours or five days. Okay, so as a part-time employee, you could technically get more than five days off if you're within those 40 hours. Yeah, it would be five. Yes, correct. Okay. How many, how many times a year? So that would be up for the year, meaning, you know, it's five days for the year. So if you use all five in January during flu season, then then you're done. A lot of employers offer more, uh, but this this is what the minimum is. Now, they there are ways you can do, employees can take more time off. It just is unpaid. So the law just requires that the five days or the 40 hours be paid for sick time. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I think that is a, a good law coming out. And it will also help protect your other members of your workforce from that sick employee. Yeah, when I grew up, you know, it was uh, admirable. You know, you go to work, you know, no matter what, you're sick or not. And now I think we've kind of learned that that is admirable. And, and nobody's going to deny that being good work ethic. However, if you're sick, and you go to work, all you're doing a lot of times is just making everybody else sick. And then and then it becomes a domino effect. You know, you might be able to push through it. And then the next week, you know, the, the person that works next to you is now sick. So um, the, the concept behind it, I think, is a really good, solid concept. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So I know that there's um, a law about reproductive loss. Can we get into into that one? That one's pretty new. Yeah, that one is pretty new. And and again, it, you know, we're going to figure out what a lot of this means. But the what the law says is now that we provide or California has to provide five days of protected time off for a reproductive loss event. And I said it that way because that's what the law says. The law is now categorizing or is defining what a reproductive loss event is so really what that means if someone heaven forbid um you know suffers a miscarriage or or suffers any other kind of reproductive loss event they get five days of protected time off those days don't necessarily have to go in a row um let's say you wanted to take a day off you know this month and a day off next month if it's connected to that reproductive loss they get that time off um that could be a failed adoption that could be um, you know, unassisted, um, unsuccessful reproduction, you know, it's a pretty broad category. Um, so the other thing that's interesting, I was thinking about this is unlike, you know, bereavement law, where we have that, that you have to provide the employer can ask, you know, for paperwork or documentation, 
This law does not contain a provision allowing employers to request documentation. Um, so, because this is a new law, we're still going to figure out what that means. But in essence, this the law doesn't require you to ask for documentation to prove it. Um, I, I would not to say people wouldn't take advantage of this. I would really hope nobody does. But just so you know, you know, you being the employer, you give them this time off. They get protected time off. Um, the employer, you know, it's up to you um, whether it's paid or unpaid. It's up to the employer. However, but they employees must be able to use their time, paid time off, any vacation, any accrued sick leave, anything they've built up, they get to use for this. Um, if the employer decides in their employee manual that it is, you know, paid time off, then they get to use that. Um, employees that experience more than one reproductive loss event in 12 months um, can only only have to be provided up to 20 days of leave. So when you're, one of the most important things to go off on a little side note here, one of the most important things I always tell my, my clients that are business owners is the number one thing you do to protect yourself is to have an employee manual and update that regularly. Because that employee manual really sets the roadmap on how employees are going to be treated, what is expected of them, what you're going to provide as an employer. This is a perfect time to go update that employee manual and add that in there. And then you have to make that decision. Are you going to provide that time paid or not? The law doesn't require it. You know, maybe if you've got, you know, if you could afford it, I'd recommend paying it just because it seems like a really good human thing to do. Um, But the law does say you can't require any paperwork. So I think I answered your question that, did I? You did, but I have another question. So you said it's five days through the law, but then you said 20 days throughout the year. Can you? Yeah, so that's uh, unfortunately, and again, heaven forbid, someone experiences more than one um, failed reproductive loss event in a year. They can get up to 20 days of protected time off. Wow. Jeremiah, it's Phoebe. I have a follow-up question to that. So um, can you clarify what the term protected means? Uh, they would be Their job would be protected in the ways that they can't lose uh, their job? Or um, how, how do you uh, clarify that for us? You you did a really good job clarifying it. That's, that's exactly what it is. So that means they get time off without any penalty, meaning, yeah, they can't, you can't use it against them in deciding a promotion. You can't terminate them. Um, based on taking the time off. It's just basically what it is, is it's they get time away from the office or time away from the job without being penalized. And what was the definition of reproductive loss? Um, Does a is abortion included in this reproductive loss definition? You know, that that's a good question. It, it doesn't the, the way that this is directly from the law. The term reproductive loss event is broadly defined to include a failed adoption, failed surrogacy, miscarriage, stillbirth, or unsuccessful assisted reproduction. So I I would say at this point, um, uh, an abortion does not fall under that based on that. Um, But but that's that's a really good question. And that's something I think we're going to have to uh, determine. I would say... The law purposely defined that reproductive or a failed reproductive event broadly on purpose. Okay. Um, 
So, so that's something you'd want to, if that issue pops up for one of your employers, I would say, I would recommend that employer to talk to that attorney at that, to their attorney at that moment, uh, because the case law hasn't come out yet. This is just a law that's been enacted and it's going to take some time for the courts to determine how broad that, uh, definition is. So, so I gave you the, the typical lawyer answer of it depends, right? I have another question too. Um, would this law apply for just the person who is going through the failed reproductive event, or would this also apply for their partner? So let's say if, um, you know, any, basically any gender can uh, apply for this uh, protected law. Yes. I, yes. The way I read it is it would apply to either gender because as we both know, um, it affects both parents or both, um, you know, partners equally. So this would apply to either one, either gender. Great. Very good. Does that also apply to where if uh, they, the female actually had the baby and the baby was out for about a month and then the, the baby passed too? You know, I, that's a really good question. And, and gosh, I, unfortunately people do go through that. I hope they don't. And, um, I would say with a strict reading of the law that that would not apply to that because it's not a reproductive loss event that would probably fall under bereavement. Um, but, but I don't really like to think about that, but I, I think the answer to your question is, would be no. Right. Because once the child is born, it, it's a live birth as opposed to, let's say if you were pregnant and then the child was accidentally lost. Yeah, like a miscarriage. Yeah, a miscarriage. So that I think that would be falling under the failed reproductive event. But if the yeah. child was born one to two months or however long, that's already considered a live birth. Yeah, the only reason why I asked, I asked that is because I know there's like a maternity leap of about, uh, what, three months. And I yeah, they're there. Yeah, that's the paid parental leave, correct? Yeah, so I thought, well, if something like that happened, like towards the last, you know, part of the three months, you know, if the baby passed, then does that still come into play that they could still have an extra 10, 20 days after that? Yeah, it, it wouldn't fall under this because, like like you said, this it wouldn't be a reproductive loss event at that point. Okay, all right. Okay, so both of these new laws are pretty um, compassionate towards the employee. Um, so, I mean... That's great. Not, not too much of a burden on the employer at this time. Um, what else is in store for our employers this year? So, um, well, I just want to be—I just want to be clear because the lawyer and me won't, you know, let me not. So, they—I agree with you. Very compassionate to employees, but there is a cost. Let, let's not forget there is always a cost, especially on the on the reproductive loss. There may not be a cost because we don't have to provide that as paid. But just with the, you know, the extra sick time, understand that is a cost to employers. So, like, yes. um, so you do need to factor that in when you're factoring in your budgets and, you know, how you're going to deal with that. But to, to answer your questions, one of the other things that's probably we knew this was coming, meaning we, meaning the lawyers, um, the legal world kind of saw this coming or saw the writing on the walls. But California has basically stripped all power away from a non-compete clause. So beginning on January 1st, uh, so just a couple of days ago, employers may not enter into or enforce an employment agreement, no matter how specific. So the old rule used to be 
Well, you can't do a non-compete unless it's really specific, saying, you know, you can't, oh, um, I always think of it as like accountant. You know, if you want to join our account firm, if you leave, you can't be an accountant within 50 miles or within 30 miles. So the, the old rule used to be as long as it's specific and narrowly tailored, you can do it. Now that the law has specifically said those are gone. In fact, the law says no matter how narrowly tailored that restricted employee, you can't do it. And this is also retroactive, meaning this law says this restriction applies regardless of where and when such agreements were presented. So so one of the things that employers used to do, um, especially if there were multi-state employers, is we would say, um, or the employer would say, well, this contract is entered into Nebraska. And in Nebraska, we allow non-competes, but you're going to be an employee in California. California now has said it doesn't matter where this contract was entered into. In California, they're not enforceable. And in fact, we give the power to employees... Um, if they're ever presented or, or threatened with such an agreement, they can now seek immediate injunctive release, relief or damages in California. And that employee, if they have to do that, would be entitled to reasonable attorney's fees and costs. Oh, my goodness. So what what do our employers need to do if they want, if they have some non-competes on file or with their employees or former employees, what are the employer's next steps with, within this law? That's a really good question. And in fact, the law kind of already figured that in. So by February 14th of this year, February 14th of 2024, California employers and non-California employers with California employees must notify all current and former employees, though defined as those employed after January 1st of 2022, in writing that their previously executed agreements are covered by the new law and are now void. And if they don't do that, they could be subject to fees uh, or fines in, in about $2,500 per violation. So wow. not only are employees not bound by these not these non-compete clauses, employers have about a month, you know, until February 14th, Valentine's Day, to inform anybody that they're if they've already previously signed one, that their non-compete clause is void. And what were those dates for the employment that the um, that they would need to be informed? It was so after. Any, yeah. So any current employee at any time they have to be informed, or any former employee that was employed after January first, twenty twenty two. Okay. So what I would advise any of your uh, employers that have non-compete that have them in their employee manual or have a separate non-compete, they should go see their attorney and figure out if they're bound by these, uh, if this new law affects them. Uh, the short answer is probably yes, it does, but they should really go talk to their attorney because if you don't do these notices within a certain time, like I said, in about a month, um, they could be subject to the fines and, and it's $2,500 a pop. So, um, so, you know, that, that could add up. That's good to know, too, to be aware as an employer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say this applies to, to all the businesses. You know, not I would say most businesses, in my experiences, don't do non-competes. I know I've steered my clients away from them for years because California has been whittling away the um, 
really the teeth of non-competes for for years. Um, this was really the the nail in you know the coffin. We knew California was going to do this um, because the idea behind this is we don't want employees not being able to go out and make a living. We don't want them to be bound by these you know uh, oppressive contracts that so they can't go out and earn a living or. As long as you're engaging in a lawful profession, trade, or business, we want them to be able to do that, you know? Um, so the concept behind it is, is, a, is a good concept. Um, so if you do have an, if you are an employer that have ever done non-compete contracts, go talk to your attorney. Okay. Okay. So well, I've got that's... another one that might be interesting. Uh, I think this is interesting to employees and, and employers. So California has just amended the Fair Employment and Housing Act to protect employees for any off-premises or off-duty cannabis use. So it is now unlawful for an employer to discriminate against a person in hiring, termination, or any term or condition of employment based on someone's cannabis use off the job and away from the workplace. Wow. Okay. So what is this going to mean for our employers? And I think this is really going to be, you know, industry by industry. I can see as an office worker, not a big deal. Your chances of getting injured on the job are very minimal, but say construction or anything where you're operating heavy equipment, how, how are we going to, as an employers, be able to regulate this and make sure that our employees aren't high on the job? That's a good question. So that's a this is another one of those laws that I think we're going to see get um, we're going to see some case law on this as the year years go on. But what it what it says basically is we can't control your off duty work, which sure. makes sense from a concept. Yeah, sure. I agree with with you though as well. Now, the law doesn't say that, or let me say it this way. We can certainly, every employer can certainly control that their employees are not high, that are that are not using cannabis while on the job. That would include lunch, you know, uh, because obviously that's still being your system when you come back to work. Yes. Uh, you have a right to not have your employees use cannabis while, or be under the influence while they're at the job. What it does say, though, is you can't control what they do off hours and away from the job site. So we're going to have to figure out what this, how this is going to be in practice. But like you said, this is going to be industry specific. An office worker, this may not be as big of a deal. But yeah, someone that's, you know, uh, helping to build a house or a construction worker, they can't be under the influence. Don't, don't get me wrong. If, if they're at the job and they're all under the influence, you have a right to take uh, you know disciplinary action, but over their weekend, if they use cannabis because it is legal, we can't uh, make affect their job on that. We can't terminate them for what they do off hours over the weekend. Okay, so we all know that cannabis stays in your system much longer than a few hours or a weekend. So, say your employee gets injured, obviously, usually you drug test, correct? Yes. Um, how are you going to be able to tell that this cannabis that's showing up on their drug test was consumed off, you know, during their off time versus possibly that morning or the, at lunch break? Is there like um, concentration levels? Is there a way we that um, we can distinguish the use time? So that's a really good question. And I don't know if we have an answer to that yet that that I can give to, that would apply to everyone. So what 
I guess the, the, the crux of it or really the point of it is if they're under the influence while they're at the job or while they're performing their duties, you certainly have a right to take disciplinary action. How we prove that is is an, a different, different question, really, and, and that would be a case-by-case issue. Um, but, but I think you bring up a very good point, and, and that's why I said earlier maybe in my little um, diatribe earlier that we're really good at enacting laws, and then we figure out what they mean later. Um, and, and that's what the courts are for. And that's what we're going to have to figure out if heaven forbid you, you have, you're an employer and you have an employee that you think is under the influence. That's something you should talk to your HR rep about, um, or your attorney about because how you're going to document that, how you're going to establish that they were, um, you know, under the influence is something you're going to want to do because now, now they have this protection. So if they go to the labor board or they well, you know, they get an attorney that says, well, they can't fire me or they can't, you know, um, send me home because that cannabis I used, you know, 24 hours ago or I used it over the weekend. I wasn't influenced now. Your documentation should really be spot on to prove why you feel they were under the influence at the time. And that's going to be a really case by case, fact specific issue. Honestly, it sounds like a nightmare for um, some of our employers, right? Because this just kind of seems like an out for the employee. They can just always say that they consumed off, you know, on their off time. I don't necessarily disagree with you. And and what's funny is I'm a small business owner myself. I mean, I, I have a law firm that's got, you know, eight employees. I have other attorneys that work for me. And I always have to remind, you know, my clients and, and even just people sometimes, even though you're a business owner, Probably 50%, if not more, of your time is spent on not running the business, is running this stuff, meaning, you know, having to deal with employees, having to deal with, you know, government, having to deal with taxes, having to deal with, you know, making sure all your paperwork is right. And that's where, you know, people like you, you know, the chamber comes in and gives you the great resources and can, you know, you have to go to these seminars and, and people like Randall that can help with marketing. When you're the business owner, you're the guy that, or the girl that runs everything. You, the buck stops with you, not not to have a you know a, a bad pun. Yeah, you wear all the hats. I mean, there's times I'm taking the trash out, and then there's sometimes I'm the HR person. Sometimes I'm the marketer, and uh, so I I don't know how to solve that problem other than. I advise every business owner to get the resources around them so they can focus on their business. You know, if you couldn't, and sometimes, you know, you have to start and be everything. When you first start out, you are the janitor, you're the marketer, you're the business owner. But as things build, use your resources and use your time wisely. You know, get that attorney you like, you know, get that, you know, maybe marketing person that can come in and help you with that. Go to the chamber and listen to all the seminars. You know, um, I know I've given talks at the chamber. We've got another one coming up in February that we're going to talk about labor law. Um, you know, and, there, and there's so much involved in being a business owner. Sometimes it is a nightmare, but I don't want to discourage people. California is a great state. I mean, we all like to complain about it and we all have complaints about but it's people are moving here. It's a great place to do business. I mean, it can't be all that bad. We're all here. Yep. So just know how to do this. Get the resources. Get the right people on your team. 
And that way you can focus on the business and, and then we can deal with stuff like this as it pops up. I mean, I have clients that call me all the time and, and, you know, might call me and say, Hey, I've got this employee issue. What do you think? You know, and sometimes we talk through it. Sometimes it's something that they need my help on. Sometimes they just need to bounce an idea off of me, you know, and sometimes it's, Hey, that's not a legal issue. Why don't you call your HR person? And, um, you know, so build that team. I, I think, you know, your number one job as being a business owner is be great at your business. And that's why you do it because you like it and you're great at it. Your second job is to get your team of people to help you. Yes. Um, so another question related to this um, this law, are there any industries that are excluded from this law, from the marijuana law? Not that says it, uh, meaning that the law didn't write that way, didn't write it in a way that it is, but there's going to be some industry specific, meaning you know, law enforcement, um, some government agencies. Remember that this law applies to private employers. Um, so I can certainly, this, like, I guess the short answer is this wouldn't apply to some government agencies. This would not apply. And I can see how this is going to, as, as the law gets figured out and as law gets defined, um, I can see some industry um, exclusions. Um, at the moment, there isn't any in the law. Okay, so we'll just have to wait and see how this how this unfolds. Anything else? What else has California brought bestowed upon us this year? So here's one that I I can talk about for hours, but I won't. Uh, I'll try not to. Um, Randall will <laughs> tell me to stop in a minute. But um, so one of the new laws that came out is, and this law has always been a problem. And, and this is the probably the number one most difficult thing for employers to to either ex- understand or accept is the difference between an employee and an independent contractor. And it's it's a really clear answer is it's clear, but not clear if that makes sense and, and leave it to a lawyer to say it that way. But so if you have an employee, then you have, you know, all the stuff that comes with that payroll taxes, all that other stuff. Some employers will try to, to skirt that or get away with that by labeling uh, people as independent contractors. And independent contractors um, are a great thing if they're truly independent contractors. The whole point I bring this up is California, starting in January 1st of 2024, if you miscategorize um, your employees as independent contractors, a willful misclassification can result in a fine of five to fifteen thousand dollars in civil penalties. And also those penalties can be increased to ten thousand to twenty-five thousand per violation if it's been a pattern or there's a practice of violations. So like I said, I spent hours on this and I won't, but the, the simple way to think of it is if you control that person, meaning, you know, they wear your uniform, you tell them when out, what hours to show up to work, you know, you provide them the tools, you know, so on and so forth. They're an employee. They are not an independent contractor. An independent contractor, no pun intended, has to be independent. So like a, a good example or probably the the example I would always give an independent contractor is like a hairstylist. A hairstylist might rent a booth from a business owner. A business owner might own the salon, but then rent out the individual booths. But 
that hairstylist decides when to come into work. That hairstylist brings their own tools. That hairstylist, most importantly, has their own clients. They book with that hairstylist when they're going to come in, you know, and get their hair cut or dyed or whatever they do. That is a definition of an independent contractor. That business owner might own the salon, but does not control that hairstylist. That hairstylist, again, makes their own schedule, brings their own tools, has their own clients. They're basically using that little booth or they're using that um, facility to do their work. That's the true definition of an independent contractor. And, and I always err on the side of employees. Um, as a business owner or as I consult business owners, I like that control. You know, you want to be able to tell your employee when to show up. You want them to wear that uniform maybe or, or, or tell them what they can wear. Um, you know, it, it always err on the side of that because there's big penalties if you miscategorize it. That's, that was a very clear definition. I really appreciate that. And hopefully that helps some of our listeners, you know, just to really guide them in that. That's been a really hot topic for several years now. So thank you. Thank you for that. Got one last one that is industry specific, but um, it's funny. I was actually just telling um, one of my daughter's friends about it. And she's like, I didn't know that I can get paid for that. But so if you own a, a if you're a business owner that owns a restaurant or anything that has that requires employees to get food handler cards, you now must pay for that food handler card. Oh, wow. Um, and you must pay for their time that's required to complete the training. So SB 476 requires employers to cover any costs associated with obtaining the food handler card in addition to the certain certificate program cost and the employee's time to complete the training. So that one, I think, kind of just snuck up. Nobody really saw that one coming. And in fact, like I said, I was just talking to one of my daughter's friends who works for a restaurant locally, and it just came up in conversation that she said, oh, I had to renew my food handler card because they wouldn't put me on a schedule because it expired. And I said, did you know you could get paid for that? And she didn't know that. And and I don't think uh, the place she works for knew that either because they haven't uh, offered to pay that. So anybody that owns a business that requires food handler cards, pay your employees starting January for the card and for their time to get it. Wow. So our food industry is, has, has a few new laws out that are specific to them, including this one. But I know like the minimum wage has changed, correct, this year? Correct. There's some change for um, not all food workers. Uh, it depends on how many employees and uh, how many locations and stuff they have. But yes, um, fast food minimum wage. It we call it um, the California fast food restaurant employees. It is now we we replaced the uh, old fast food accountability act and replaced it with a twenty dollar per hour minimum wage. Um, starting in April 1st of 2024. I had to look that one up because that one's industry specific. And that one, again, uh, has some certain restrictions on it. If you own a restaurant, call your attorney. Definitely. It's good to double check on that for sure. Yeah. So um, what other uh, new labor laws or HR laws came into effect for 2024? Well, I mean, there's there's a bunch of them, but those are the... I try to highlight the ones that I think are really um, the most interesting. Um, this one I, I think is an interesting one too and, and could apply to a lot of businesses. Um, we named it, it's called, it's AB 636. It's 
named the updated wage theft prevention notice. So what it does is under California Labor Code 2810.5, this requires employers to provide each employee with a written notice at the time of hiring with the basic terms of employment, such as pay, payday, legal name of employer, and any doing business as. So the the concept behind the law, and this actually, I, I sat some time at the labor board and, and I was kind of surprised how often this happens, but somebody gets hired, you know, for the day or they get hired for just a couple days. And then at the end of those couple days, you know, unfortunately the employee doesn't get paid. Sometimes they don't know who they worked for. So, you know, they want to complain to the labor board and the labor board is, is is there to help people in this in this situation if the employee doesn't get paid, but they didn't know who they were working for. So this law now requires that you provide a written notice to your employee at the time of hiring, all the basic information, who you are, the employer's name, what you do business as, their rate of pay. Um, and this really seems like basic information, but it's surprising how many people don't do that. And what about this, the HR forum that's going to be held at uh, the bomb shelter here in February? You want to touch a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I'll let Randall talk about it first. Yes, absolutely. So we have an HR forum coming uh, through the chamber for Paris Valley Chamber of Commerce on February 2nd at the bomb shelter. So today you just kind of heard a little bit of the tidbits of, of good information for businesses out there. So I'm going to just let everybody know to RSVP, look on the Chamber website, and this is going to be one of many forums that are coming up. Uh, this one will be focused on the HR side. So for like like you heard, it's just it's incredible how many changes have been coming about on everything in the restaurant industry. My, my, myself, I have a restaurant background, uh, and I, you know, I used to sign non-compete uh contracts with some of my uh, past employers as well. And and now, you know, and just seeing how much is affected and how many changes that we're going through. Uh, and just like Jeremiah said in, in, in the very beginning, it's like now it's like you need more than ever to make sure that you have the right resources, the right information at your fingertips or else it could be very costly to your business. And, you know, and that's just to say, you know, we, it used to be a business is you do what you do best and that's your business. But now you got to do more than that uh, and, and be an expert in some of those areas and those fields that you have no idea or training in. And that's where the chamber and experts like Jeremiah Raxter come into play. So definitely uh, let, check the uh, chamber website, go to the events calendar, RSVP for the upcoming event. And then uh, we hope to see you there among and many other events that we have coming up. So. Thank you. And, and uh, Melissa, it's just a lot of great information and knowledge. I'm excited for this guest that we had in our member. Uh, he's been a proud member of, of the chamber. And, and I'm going to just lead on to that because he's really, truly a chamber member as well. That's awesome. And thank you so much, Jeremiah Raxter. He is the founder and principal attorney at Raxter Law. You can find him online, Raxter Law at RaxterLaw.com. And that's Raxter, R-A-X-T-E-R law.com or you can email them at office at raxterlaw.com you can also find the paris valley chamber of commerce online at www.pariscchamber.net or email them at pvcc 
at ParisChamber.net. Thank you so much. This is um, the Office Manager for the Paris Valley Chamber of Commerce, Melissa Barnes, and fellow Ambassador and Marketing Consultant, Randall Rodriguez, and of course, our fellow Paris Valley Chamber member, Jeremiah Raxter of Raxter Law. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike and Phoebe show on Alternative Twist Radio. If you missed any past episodes, just search the Mike and Phoebe show or Alternative Twist Radio on any major podcast app.